developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Part 3, Chapter 10 of Madame Bovary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lori Hemp Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling Part Three, Chapter Ten He had only received the chemist's letter thirty-six hours after the event, and, from consideration for his feelings, Homai had so worded it that it was impossible to make out what it was all about. First, the old fellow had fallen as if struck by apoplexy. Next, he understood that she was not dead, but she might be. At last, he had put on his blouse, taken his hat, fastened his spurs to his boots, and set out at a full speed. And the whole of the way, old out, panting, was torn by anguish. Once even he was obliged to dismount. He was dizzy. He heard voices round about him. He felt himself going mad. Day broke. He saw three black hens asleep in a tree. He shuddered, horrified at this omen. Then he promised the Holy Virgin three chasubles for the church, and that he would go barefooted from the cemetery at Bertau to the chapel of Vazonville. He entered Marom, shouting for the people of the inn burst open the door with a thrust of his shoulder, made for a sack of oats, emptied a bottle of sweet cider into the manger, and again mounted his nag, whose feet struck fire as it dashed along. He said to himself that no doubt they would save her. The doctors would discover some remedy, surely. He remembered all the miraculous cures he had been told about. Then she appeared to him dead. She was there, before his eyes, lying on her back in the middle of the road. He reined up, and the hallucination disappeared. At Quincampoix, to give himself heart, he drank three cups of coffee one after the other. He fancied they had made a mistake in the name and writing. He looked for the letter in his pocket, felt it there, but did not dare to open it. At last he began to think it was all a joke, someone's spite, the jest of some wag, and besides, if she were dead, one would have known it. But no! There was nothing extraordinary about the country. The sky was blue, the trees swayed, a flock of sheep passed. He saw the village. He was seen coming, bending forward upon his horse, belaboring it with great blows, the girths dripping with blood. When he had recovered consciousness, he fell, weeping into Bovary's arms. "'My girl, Emma, my child, tell me!' The other replied, sobbing. "'I don't know, I don't know, it's a curse!' The druggist separated them. These horrible details are useless. I will tell this gentleman all about it. Here are the people coming. Dignity. Come now. Philosophy. The poor fellow tried to show himself brave, and repeated several times. Yes, courage. Oh, cried the old man, so I will have by God. I'll go along or her to the end. The bell began tolling. All was ready. They had to start. And seated in a stall of the choir, 
side by side. They saw pass and repass in front of them continually, the three chanting choristers. The serpent player was blowing with all his might. Monsieur Bournicien, in full vestments, was singing in a shrill voice. He bowed before the tabernacle, raising his hands, stretched out his arms. Lestiboudois went about the church with his whalebone stick. The bier stood near the lectern, between four rows of candles. Charles felt inclined to get up and put them out. Yet he tried to stir himself to a feeling of devotion, to throw himself into the hope of a future life in which he should see her again. He imagined to himself that she had gone on a long journey, far away for a long time. But when he thought of her lying there, and that all was over, that they would lay her in the earth, he was seized with a fierce, gloomy, despairful rage. At times he thought he felt nothing more, and he enjoyed this lull in his pain. Whilst at the same time he reproached himself for being a wretch. The sharp noise of an iron ferruled stick was heard on the stones, striking them at regular intervals. It came from the end of the church and stopped short at the lower aisles. A man in a coarse brown jacket knelt down painfully. It was Hippolyte, the stable boy at the Lion d'Or. He had put on his new leg. One of the choristers went round the nave making a collection, and the coppers chinked one after the other on the silver plate. Oh, make haste! I am in pain! cried Bovary, angrily throwing him a five franc piece. The churchman thanked him with a deep bow. They sang, they knelt, they stood up. It was endless. He remembered that once, in the early times, they had been to mass together, and they had sat down on the other side, on the right by the wall. The bell began again. There was a great moving of cheers. The bearers slipped their three staves under the coffin, and everyone left the church. Then Justin appeared at the door of the shop. He suddenly went in again, pale, staggering. People were at the windows to see the procession pass. Charles at the head walked erect. He affected a brave air and saluted with a nod those who, coming out from the lanes, or from their doors, stood amidst the crowd. The six men, three on either side, walked slowly, panting a little. The priests, the choristers, and the two choir-boys recited the De Profundis, and their voices echoed over the fields, rising and falling with their undulations. Sometimes they disappeared in the windings of the path, but the great silver cross rose always before the trees. The women followed in black cloaks with turned-down hoods. Each of them carried in her hands a large lighted candle, and Charles felt himself growing weaker at this continual repetition of prayers and torches, beneath this oppressive odour of wax and of cassocks. A fresh breeze was blowing, the rye and coals were sprouting, little dewdrops trembled at the roadsides and on the hawthorn hedges. All sorts of joyous sounds filled the air, the jolting of a cart rolling afar off in the ruts, the crowing of a cock repeated again and again, or the gambling of a foal running away under the apple-trees. The pure sky was fretted with rosy clouds. A bluish haze rested upon the cots covered with iris. Charles, as he passed, recognized each courtyard. He remembered mornings like this, when, after visiting some patient, he came out from one and returned to her. The black cloth bestrewn with white beads blew up from time to time, laying bare the coffin. The tired bearers walked more slowly, and it advanced with constant jerks, like a boat that pitches with every wave. 
they reached the cemetery. The men went right down to a place in the grass where a grave was dug. They ranged themselves all round, and while the priest spoke, the red soil thrown up at the sides kept noiselessly slipping down at the corners. Then, when the four ropes were arranged, the coffin was placed upon them. He watched it descend. It seemed descending forever. At last a thud was heard. The ropes creaked as they were drawn up. Then Bournicien took the spade handed to him by Lestiboudois, with his left hand all the time sprinkling water. With the right he vigorously threw in a large spadeful, and the wood of the coffin, struck by the pebbles, gave forth that dread sound that seems to us the reverberation of eternity. The ecclesiastic passed the holy water sprinkler to his neighbor. This was Homai. He swung it gravely, then handed it to Charles, who sank to his knees in the earth and threw in handfuls of it, crying, Adieu! He sent her kisses. He dragged himself towards the grave to engulf himself with her. They led him away, and he soon grew calmer, feeling perhaps, like the others, a vague satisfaction that it was all over. Old Rualt, on his way back, began quietly smoking a pipe, which Homai, in his innermost conscience, thought not quite the thing. He also noticed that Monsieur Binet had not been present, and that Couvache had made off after Mass, and that Theodore, the notary's servant, wore a blue coat. As if one could not have got a black coat, since that is a custom by Jove. And to share his observations with others, he went from group to group. They were deploring Emma's death, especially Le Heureux, who had not failed to come to the funeral. Poor little woman, what a trouble for her husband, the druggist continued. Do you know that but for me he would have committed some fatal attempt upon himself? Such a good woman to think that I saw her only last Saturday in my shop. I haven't had leisure, said Homai, to prepare a few words that I would have cast upon her tomb. Charles, on getting home undressed, an old Ruelt put on his blue blouse. It was a new one, and as he had often during the journey wiped his eyes on the sleeves, the dye had stained his face, and the traces of tears made lines in the layers of dust that covered it. Madame Bovary Sr. was with them. All three were silent. At last the old fellow sighed. "'Do you remember, my friend, that I went to Tost once, when you had just lost your first deceased? I consoled you at the time. I thought of something to say then, but now—' Then, with a loud groan that shook his whole chest, "'Ah, this is the end for me, do you see? I saw my wife go, then my son, and now to-day it's my daughter.' He wanted to go back at once to Bertaux, saying that he could not sleep in this house. He even refused to see his granddaughter. No, no, it would grieve me too much. Only you'll kiss her many times for me. Good-bye, you're a good fellow, and then I shall never forget that, he said, slapping his thigh. Never fear, you shall always have your turkey. But when he reached the top of the hill he turned back, as he had turned once before on the road of Saint-Victor, when he had parted from her. The windows of the village were all on fire, beneath the slanting rays of the sun sinking behind the field. He put his hand over his eyes, and saw on the horizon an enclosure of walls, where trees here and there formed black clusters between white stones. Then he went on his way at a gentle trot, for his nag had gone lame. Despite their fatigue, Charles and his mother stayed very long that evening, talking together. They spoke of the days of the past and of the future. She would come to live at Yonville. She would keep house for him. They would never part again. She was ingenious and caressing, rejoicing in her heart at gaining once more an affection that had wandered from her for so many years. Midnight struck. 
The village, as usual, was silent, and Charles, awake, thought always of her. Rodolphe, who, to distract himself, had been rambling about the wood all day, was sleeping quietly in his chateau, and Leon, down yonder, always slept. There was another who at that hour was not asleep. On the grave between the pine trees, a child was on his knees weeping, and his heart, rent by sobs, was beating in the shadow beneath the load of an immense regret, sweeter than the moon and fathomless as a night. The gate suddenly grated. It was Lestie Boudois. He came to fetch his spade, that he had forgotten. He recognized Justin climbing over the wall, and at last knew who was the culprit who stole these potatoes. End of Part 3, Chapter 10 Recording by Laurie Hemp